The Chinese president warns against expanding military alliances and using economic sanctions as a weapon. Xi Jinping made the comments at a BRICS summit attended by Vladimir Putin. But what leverage does this group of emerging economies build on the world stage? I'm your host, Hashim Ahlbara, and you're listening to the Inside Story podcast, where we dissect, analyze, and help define major global stories. Let's bring in our guests. In Beijing, Aina Tangan is a senior fellow at the Taihe Institute. In Cape Town, Sunush Naidu is a senior research fellow at the Institute for Global Dialogue, a South African think tank focusing on China and Africa. In Williamsburg, Virginia, Nancy Snow is a visiting distinguished professor at Tsinghua University's Schwarzman Scholars Program. Welcome to the program. Aina, when the Chinese leader talks during the talks about the need to boost multilateral cooperation and ask the BRICS, the BRICS to condemn or to reject what he described as a Cold War mentality and block confrontation. Was he sending a message to the Biden administration? Well, I, I think it's more than just Biden. I think he's sending a message to the world that uh, right now there are so many issues and problems out there uh, that talking about uh, ideology at a time when the world needs a blueprint. We're looking at long-term global warming. Short-term, we have inflation, we have wars, uh, and we're about to uh, experience uh, probably a global recession. It's going to drive developing countries into the ground. You've seen that already with Sri Lanka. And it's necessary for there to be, as I said, an adult in the room. And he's, he's in essence asking the BRICS to be the leaders, given that there's been a default from the developed world. Sanusha, this summit is held against the backdrop of extraordinary geopolitical landscape. Now, the, the general assumption was basically that the BRICS is an organization trying to chart its own path independently from the influence of key players, the Russians on one hand, the Americans on the other. But there is a, a feeling that BRICS is moving to, more towards supporting Russia. Um, good day. I think that sense that you get that Russia will be a key actor and try and influence and strategically push the BRICS towards some kind of overall support. I mean, you, you get the sense that it's, on the one hand, the perception that is being driven in terms of the global narrative, that the other BRIC countries will have to show support to Russia because Russia is a member of the BRICS, and therefore there's this kind of overall uh, overarching support for, for one of its members. But I think what's also important to bear in mind is that the BRICS countries realize, uh, particularly uh, China, India, South Africa, and Brazil, how much the, 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 the effect of what's happening in terms of where the global political arena is and the kind of implications we see, as mentioned, in terms of the economic security and the kind of recession we are kind of, we are heading to in the global economy, mm -hmm. makes it very difficult to say that we're only going to support one country in this. I think all of the mm -hmm. countries in the BRICS realize how important it is to try and stabilize this global political arena and the fact that the global development agenda and the overall global economic architecture is in a tailspin and is very fragile and unstable at the moment. Uh, Nancy, on the other hand, uh, the Americans widely believe that against the backdrop of the strained relations between the US and China, the Chinese are likely to use 
the bloc of BRICS to further advance their own political agenda at the expense of the geopolitical interests of the United States of America. Right, and um, greetings from Williamsburg, Virginia, on the campus of William & Mary, where I'm presently attending a conference on China's global influence. Um, I think that multilateral dialogue, whether it's happening in the BRICS or it's happening with the Quad, uh, if it's going on, um, we, we've got so many global issues, I would agree with the first speaker that th this really shouldn't be a new Cold War. It's an interesting phenomenon, though, to have India's participation, because weeks ago, I was being interviewed about the Quad meeting uh, right in Tokyo, where I live most of the time. And India is playing more of this mediator role. Uh, it's not alone either. There are many countries that don't really want to choose sides, that want to work with mm -hmm all global players, including the great powers, and uh, don't really want to get into these ideological divides. Uh, I think there's a lot of pessimism about uh, what we can do together in, in, on the global commons. I don't share that pessimistic outlook, but I think there is that feeling now with the rise of a global recession, with a lot of human suffering, that people really uh, are questioning the leadership. Are we going to see a peaceful resolution in Ukraine? Are we going to be able to come together as a global humanity of people beyond just nation mm -hmm. states and power politics? Aina, since this is all about optics, uh, now, if you look at the event itself and the way it's viewed, now this is Putin's first meeting with hands of key and major economies uh, since the start of the war in Ukraine. And for many, the, the, the West in particular, this is a platform for Putin to tell the international community that isolation sanctions are backfiring, since I have the backing of some of the key international players. Well, I, I don't think that he does have the backing. Uh, you'll note that uh, in the speeches that followed, they avoided uh, the issue of Russia. Uh, it was only Xi Jinping who pointed out that it was by the Ukraine situation was avoidable if they had not backed um, Russia into a corner and making, in essence, Russia feel that they had had to uh, fight. Other than that, everyone kind of steered clear. So. Uh, this idea that the, they're supporting Russia or they're uh, going to support the U.S. is nonsense. Each one of these nations is looking for their own daylight. I mean, uh, Brazil talking about, you know, look, they're open to any kind of economic cooperation. Uh, India talked about poverty. I mean, I mean, Africa talked about poverty. India talked about the, the event itself. I mean, at this juncture, it should not be about whose side you're on. The world is in crisis. I mean, the number one issue, even in developed countries, is inflation. And uh, yes, people have a right to question their leaders. I mean, right now, I mean, with inflationary pressure due to a shortage of oil and food, uh, they're, you know, they're pumping up the rates. Uh, the Fed is pumping up the rates. That is not going to do, produce one barrel of oil or one basket full of wheat. So, I mean, it seems kind of odd that they're continuing to do fight mm -hmm. the last war uh, and, they're, and they're not getting, gaining traction. Sanusha, I mean, at the same time, since we're talking about 
uh, about this geopolitical order. The West has been hoping to put more sanctions on Russia to, uh, to, to pressure the Russian leader into political concessions. Now, when they see that the Chinese, that the Indians, are particularly trying to tap into this void by uh, buying oil and gas at a cheaper rate from the Russians. This is somehow seen as a pushback against the sanctions by filling the coffers of the, of the Russian budget. Yeah, I mean, you know, the point here is that you are trying to promote and, 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 and push countries into a particular kind of optics and narrative and a particular trajectory. And I think the question is, everybody's looking out for themselves. I think I completely agree with the first speaker that everybody's worried uh, about what the impact is happening on the ground in terms of the fact that uh, Sri Lanka was mentioned. But I want to bring it back to Africa, just looking at the impact that this is having on African economies, on Africa's access to food, on value chains, on commodity pricing, and all of that. I mean, this interest rate approach and trying to beat inflation through increasing interest rates and austerity measures is not working out. And I think the challenge right now is this fixation that you've got to use sanctions in a vertical way. In the region that I live in, Southern Africa, we mm -hmm. saw what sanctions did to Zimbabwe. We saw what sanctions has done to ordinary people's lives in Zimbabwe because mm -hmm. they were being held and being punished for what their political leaders did not, were not able to do and, they, and took the country into a crisis because of their lack of governance. So I think this is something that we have to really think about in terms of the fact is, are you really going to be challenging Russia or are you basically creating a deeper crisis of, 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 of people's lives and livelihoods that's going to become even more undesirable and we're going to see a situation become untenable? Uh, Nancy, with a combined population of more than 3 billion uh, people and a combined GDP of more than 23 trillion. Uh, this is a massive political and economic leverage. Do you think that the BRICS is trying to present itself as an alternative to the G7 or could potentially be one of those blocks trying to mediate between the West and Russia, West and the Third World? Well, it, it, it's a little too soon to tell, but I think it's clear now because of all of our interconnectedness that we've got to come up with some other resolutions of problems and sanctions will only go so far. There's going to be a lot of compassion fatigue coming forward if the Russia invasion of Ukraine is seen as going on for years. Uh, people are really getting hurt uh, from across the globe and poorer countries and poorer people are getting hurt the most. And I'd like to add, it's, uh, you know, living in Japan, uh, Japan has been very involved in Africa, as has China, and Japan is going forward with TCAD-8, which is the Tokyo International Conference on mm -hmm. African Development meeting in Tunisia the end of August. They're not going to just be talking about vaccine diplomacy. They're going to talk about these international issues, these geopolitical realities. And they're very troublesome. They're weighing on all of us. So whether or not the BRICS is positioning itself as an alternative to G7 doesn't really matter to me. I'd like to see more peace and resolution and a stronger economy and sustainability and uh, the players involved, uh, uh, you know, if they're going to look at the 
again, global commons issues, climate change, sustainability, uh, that and, and food insecurity now, uh, then then I'm all for it. And we, we need more of these multilateral mm -hmm. dialogues, as I said earlier, not less. Aina, since it was established in 2009, you really don't get a sense that BRICS has managed to uh, achieve an, uh, a lasting legacy in terms of the pledges and the promises it made initially. Was it mainly because of the absence of cohesion between the key members? I'll give you an example. When you, when you look at India and China, both members of BRICS, they, they, they have been having very, very difficult uh, moments in their, in their recent history. Yeah, absolutely. And, and it, it, there doesn't seem to be an end in sight. Uh, but the, the issue right now is, I, I think all three uh, of us agree, this is a situation where, you know, you need lifelines. This isn't about ideology. You don't care who, who sent, you know, sends you a, a you know, flotation device when you're drowning. Um, this is really life or death. I mean, long-term climate change. I mean, you, we're already seeing the devastating effects that's having, and it's adding to the food chain woes. I mean, uh, India is having a difficult time. They thought that they could export wheat. Now it's not clear that they'll be even able to, that they might have to import wheat. And that means that the prices are going to go up globally. And you had the same thing happen in the United States with winter wheat harvest. It got very mushy towards the end there after a very um, dry season. And, you know, these types of insecurities are what are really important. If I cannot eat, I cannot live. If I do not have energy, I cannot operate my economy. I mean, the, these are the things that have mm -hmm. to be dealt with now, not, not ideology. China has simply said, look, we have a blueprint that has worked in terms of COVID, in terms of our economy, it's not about ideology. It is time to get realistic. In terms of it, what this group is doing is trying to fill a vacuum. I don't know that they will be able to do it unless they get a larger group there mm -hmm. and can be more cohesive. I do think that they can do some things in terms of infrastructure. Uh, you know, it's actually better to have, uh, not better, it's less costly to have alternative energy than coal. But mm -hmm. you have to make that additional investment. Right now, that isn't there coming from the West. It, it could come from out of bricks because of the mm -hmm. banks, and they have the means, methods, and money to do what they do, as opposed to the, you know, the West. Uh, you know, you, Biden had the three summits. We're still trying to figure out what all these frameworks are going to add up to. So far, nothing. Sunusha, to move forward, you need at least to be able to have a share vision. Uh, I mentioned India and China for the simple reason that in 2020, they were on the verge of a major military confrontation. There was violence on the border between the two countries. And there is a prevailing sentiment among the Indians, for example, that the Chinese will always use platforms such as BRICS to further advance their own political, uh, geopolitical clout. Do you see the Indians open to the very notion of expanding BRICS for the sole reason of diluting the impact of the Chinese? 
I mean, I think the issue of what China has done in innovating the BRICS Plus and now including uh, some very important and strategic countries from the global south, and in particular Argentina, including uh, Nigeria, Senegal, Egypt, and Africa, I think does actually raise questions in terms of that cohesiveness we spoke about and the fact that the more that you have a membership that's able to come together in terms of what is here and now and how we need to deal with it will be important. I think... For India, as as I would like to think for South Africa, they're still mulling over the issue of what this expansion will mean for them. For for example, in the context of Africa, if you look at South Africa as the only as the only African voice and the member in the BRICS, as well as in the G20, there is a discussion happening about whether that should be expanded to increase more of the African voice in terms of the leverage and the engagement. But I mm-hmm. think it's a question again now, not to see it only in the context of what impact that that has on the on the fact that some countries may not want it because they want to preserve their their kind of membership within the BRICS. But I think it's right now about collaboration, cooperation. If you look at the document that the Chinese had put out for this year's BRICS summit, and yeah. it talks about uh, the kind of fostering of engagements and the kind of ushering of a new development uh, pr- uh, agenda or paradigm, I think the challenge is, is you can't be exclusive anymore. You've got to now be, be seen to be inclusive, and that's key okay. to where you want to be as the BRICS. Nancy, if we set aside the, the, the differences, the political differences between the key players uh, of the BRICS and you look at the most persisting issues, particularly the fallout of the war in Ukraine, the high inflation, the grain supplies which have been disrupted, which are widely seen as potential uh, triggers of a prolonged recession in the future, could this extraordinary geopolitical moment be the time when BRICS has to reinvent itself to be able to move forward and to adapt to these new realities? Well, I just want to piggyback on what she was just saying. I think there's a lot of promise and opportunity here and because there are a lot more countries that really want to seat around the table. They want to have their representative point of view. They're thinking beyond just national interests. They're thinking regionally, globally. That's a real positive aspect. And that's the thing about crisis. We are clearly in a global crisis on so many levels. And that's when you step up and you have a reckoning. So I'm feeling more optimistic, even though my heart sinks over all of the human suffering. But we've got to come together. And I like what I'm hearing about getting beyond ideology. We're all human beings sitting on this panel talking to you. And the more that we can have these common interests, these shared interests and values, uh, all the better, because mm-hmm. these these problems are just going to become more chronic if we engage in too much of an ideological warfare. I wish the world was free of ideology. However, I have to keep asking those questions because this is the reality on the ground. I know when you look at China and the US, they they seem pretty much to be on a collision course because the Americans made it quite clear that as far as their strategy is concerned, they see China as the biggest threat threat to stability and to the American interests in the near future. Could this be something that could undermine the chances for BRICS to thrive and stay together? No, quite the opposite. Uh, And what we've witnessed is a multipolarity in action. I mean, the United States is not calling the shots. Uh, You know, know, (laughs) 
President Biden had a meeting with uh, Bolsonaro. He's going to have a meeting with MBS. Uh, these are people he called names before, uh, people who questioned his uh, presidency in Bolsonaro's case. Um, and, you know, it's it, that's almost unheard of in the past. Uh, U.S. presidents didn't swallow their pride and, and go around. They would, uh, in essence, dictate things or move things around or threaten you with the UN, uh, the uh, IMF or World Bank or something like that. No, it, the more that the U.S. in the mind of the global South and Central Asia acts erratically, is talking about ideology when people need food, that is going to actually push up their desire to have any entity, all right, including BRICS, step forward with some sort of plan. I agree. We are at a crisis. And this uh, talking about how many angels can fit on the head of a pin is not going to feed one person. Sanusha, to end on a very positive note, BRICS, could it stand in the future as somehow a saviour, stepping in, providing food to the world? I think we've got to move away from this idea that there's going to be one group that's going to save the world. Mm -hmm. I think it's about the multi, the multipolarity, the multilateral, and how do you strengthen that? If you look at the BRICS, there is a consistency in the theme, in the in in the narrative. It's always about strengthening the multilateral. It's about strengthening the UN. It's about strengthening the WTO. So I think we got to be careful in assuming that the BRICS is going to be the savior. I think the BRICS is going to be evolving, and when it evolves it's going to have different iterations and that's going to be key to what's going to be about the stabilization of this global arena which is currently in a very vulnerable uh, context right now uh, i wish we had time to continue our conversation but unfortunately we're running out of time but in the meantime sanusha naidu nancy snow and aina tangana really appreciate your insight thank you very much that's it for the Inside Story podcast. This episode was produced by Mohammed Al Aishi, Usama Aluni, Abdurrahman Warsam, and Jima Harris. Studio sound was by Aston Goodison. The program was edited by Manish Mathai, Lynn Wynn, and Jody Frias. Be sure to subscribe to the Inside Story podcast to catch every episode. Thank you for listening. We'll be back again on Friday.